Well, every, uh, every year on this weekend, on the weekend that the, the kids go back to school, we always take time out from whatever sermon series we've been in, and uh, we take time out to talk about who we are and our purpose. And we, we choose to do this every year at this time, because when the re kids return to school, often routines tend to return to the family. We get some sort of semblance of a rhythm back for the next 10 months, and then summer hits again, and inevitably chaos reigns once more for a couple months before school returns. And as we get back into rhythms, I think it's important for us to understand and us to remember who we are and what our purpose is as individuals, as families, and corporately as a church. I think reflecting on who we are and our purpose will help us to put in place healthy rhythms and healthy routines in our personal lives and corporately as a church so that what should be first in our lives is actually first in our lives. The priorities that we should have actually align with how we're living. Our desires and our deeds align with what should be the first priority in our life. You know, we live in a society that has a lot of demands. It has a lot of distractions. And the average person and the average family is often stretched to their limits, if not slightly beyond their capacity. And I think that there's this desperate need amongst followers of Christ to have in place healthy rhythms for our lives so that we don't get overly taken and we don't get overly focused on all the demands and all of the distractions that can kind of take us away from what's important in this world. And so my aim this morning is I'm not going to get into, you know, individual, here's a list of how you should live and what you should do and what are the healthy rhythms for your life because I can't possibly know that for all of the families here. Here. All of you have different capacities. All of you have different capabilities. And what would be a healthy rhythm for one family is not a healthy rhythm for another. But what I can believe, what I believe can help us determine what is a healthy rhythm for us is having a clear understanding of who we are and the purpose that God has given us. If we have a definitive understanding of those two things in our lives, who we are, and what our purpose is, it is going to help us produce healthy rhythms in our lives because when we are taken by the vision of God for his people and for his church as spirit-filled people, when we stare into these truths, these grand realities of what God has called us to be and told us who we are, it should hopefully drive us to want to be a part of that and set up our lives so that we would give our time and our talents and our treasure to the purposes that God has given us. And so that's my hope this morning. I just want to remind you of who you are and what you're called to. And I'm going to approach it from three different perspectives this morning. First, I'm going to talk about who we are as individuals. And then I'm going to talk about who we are as a church. And last, what is our purpose, both individually and as a church? Because I think the two go very nicely together. And I'll have to say just right off the bat, this is not exhaustive. Okay, I'm not going to be able to cover all of the things that we are in Christ nor will I be saying, honestly, anything new to you this morning. If you've been in church for any amount of time, if you've been in this church for any amount of time, nothing is going to be new to you. 
But I think there's this reality for followers of Christ. It's so important for us to stare into some of the truths of God and be reminded of some of the truths of God, of who we are and why we're here so that we can align our life with those purposes. We can be very forgetful. Things can very easily take over us. And so we need to be reminded every once in a while of who we are. And so first, who we are as individuals. You know, my, uh, my children, they're not here this morning, uh, but they're in this stage of life where pretend play and, and make-believe is one of their favorite activities. That's constantly happening around our house. There's pretend play and there's make-believe. And often for Aria, this involves being some sort of animal. Right? She's constantly roaming around our house, being some sort of animal and making animal noises. And, and recently, Micah, as her little brother, he has been taught very well by her the joy that this brings. And so he has started to join in in this kind of make-believe animal world that they have going on in our house. And it's, it's so uh, overwhelming at times for us as parents that there's, there's times where Kate and I will hear barks and we'll hear whimpers. And if any of you know us, which most of you do, uh, you know, that makes us kind of pause for a moment and have to discern or go investigate whether that's our children having fun or that's one of our 15 dogs who are in desperate need of attention. <laughs> it's sometimes hard to tell whether it's a puppy whining or it's our children supposedly having fun. But where I'm headed with, with this is that, you know, pretend and, and make believe, it's a fun thing as kids. It's fun for a child. To be able to be whatever you want to be is freeing as a kid. It brings great joy to little ones. But one of the realities of our culture is that increasingly in our culture, not so little ones, teenagers and beyond, adults, are living in the same kind of fantasy world that kids make up, thinking that they can do and they can be whatever they want and there's no consequences for it. We live in a time that reflects the first line of the book of Judges very clearly, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's deeply detrimental and it's deeply damaging to souls and to societies as a whole. And this is happening in our world in large part because men and women are living essentially in a make-believe world. A world where everything happens by accident. Where life occurs by chance. And where there are no absolutes. And nothing more than what can be seen is true or real. And in this kind of naturalistic, pluralistic worldview, you will expectedly produce an incorrect view of yourself. A view that puts immense importance upon yourself. Since there's nothing higher, there's nothing greater than the individual in this kind of world. And it leads to a desire for personal autonomy. It leads to an elevation of self-importance where a person's concern is themselves. And the highest value is personal fulfillment. This is the world that we live in. It is essentially the world that Paul warns us about in Romans chapter 1. Paul says, men and women suppress the truth. It's make-believe. They suppress the truth. They exchange the truth for a lie and become futile in their thinking, literally living separated in their minds from the reality of what is. 
And the truth that's being suppressed in this make-believe world, Paul says, is that there is a God. Is that there is a higher being. That there is a creator who rules over everything. Which means things are not accidental, but they are ordered. Life does not occur by chance, but is planned. There is not your truth and my truth and her truth and his truth and so on. There is one absolute truth. And being and doing whatever you want doesn't work. Because as being created, it means that we have a specific way that we function and a specific purpose. You know, human beings, we readily understand the principles of creation. One of the principles of creation is that anything that is created is made a specific way and was created with a specific purpose. We understand this, but we don't like to apply it to our understanding of ourselves. But in order to understand who we are and our purpose, we have to apply this truth to ourselves. And so as we begin to talk about who we are, as we begin to understand who we are, we have to start in the beginning, literally in Genesis, and understand that we are created beings. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Psalm 139, 13 to 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. These glorious scriptures tell us the truth that, that we were created. And scripture teaches us that we were made by God for God in order to display his glory and give him glory. But not only were we created, Genesis 1.27 tells us this incredible truth that yes, we were created, but we were also created in the image of God himself called the Imago Dei, the image of God. There's this, this very real and this very consistent search amongst human beings to find value in our lives. We search for value in everything. We search for value in our spouse. We search for value in our job. We search for value in our kids. We search for it in the opinion of other people. We search for it in our accomplishments. We search for it in our position. But value sought in created things will always leave us striving and performing and trying to be good enough because we were never created to seek value in such things. In fact, we were never created to seek value at all. You know why? Because our value is intrinsic. It is something that cannot be added to. It is something that cannot be depleted from by anything, whether it be the opinion of others whether it be our own actions, whether it be our own accomplishments or our failures, because our value is rooted in the image of the one that we bear. Our value comes from our identity as image bearers of the almighty God, and that doesn't change. 
He has declared us value, valuable by placing his image upon us. Like, think about that. The creator, God, the one who is over everything, the one who was and is and will be, the one who sets up governments and brings them low, the one who does whatever he desires, the one who nobody can stay his hand or question him, what have you done? He has the sole right to define your value, and he has declared us valuable by placing upon us his image that we carry with us. This is beautiful. And I start here because so much of human heartache, so much of human striving, allowing ourselves to get out of healthy rhythms, chasing after things that we shouldn't be chasing after is because we don't understand these two fundamental things about us. Maybe we do in our minds, but not necessarily in our hearts. We were created. We have limits. We aren't meant to be everything. But so many of us try to push ourselves outside of our limits, try to live outside of our limits. But God has naturally put in place for your good and our joy limits upon us as created beings. We push outside of them sometimes because of this desire within us to build value in our lives, wanting us to be needed, just needing to be needed by others, wanting to be seen, making sure others you know, think they can't do things or things couldn't happen without us. And we think this gives us our purpose, but it doesn't. God has created us. He has given us limits, and he has called us valuable by placing his image upon us. Understanding that we are created as image bearers of the almighty God, that we are intrinsically valuable. And recognizing that image in every other person that we come face to face with is foundational to us living out the purpose that he has given for us we must have these two truths established in our hearts and once we have these two truths that we have been created that we have been made in the image of god we can then stare into the face of the third truth and that is that we are fallen scripture makes it very clear that we are fallen human beings. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Though we were created perfectly to be in relationship with God as his image bearers, we have broken relationship with him. We have broken the relationship that we had with our creator because we are sinners. As descendants of Adam, we carry the disease of sin in our hearts, which has marred our bodies, which has marred our minds and our souls and our whole beings. Sin is why men and women do not acknowledge God. Sin is why men and women live in a fantasy world because we refuse to give authority over to God. We refuse to give rightful authority back to the one who deserves that authority. But in spite of ourselves, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our hatred, God's love compelled him to send us the cure for our disease. He sent us his son, the one who is the image of the invisible God who came down and offered his life as a sacrifice on the cross for the sins of all who believe 
who received the punishment that we should have received, giving us life so that when we believe, we are ransomed and we are redeemed as sons and daughters of God. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Colossians 1, 13-14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Through Jesus Christ, we receive the free gift of salvation. Jesus Christ came as a ransom for all, but we must accept this gift through the power of the Holy Spirit, removing the scales from our eyes that kept us in this little fantasy world that we've all set up, redeeming us, justifying us by faith, and giving us peace with our Creator God through Jesus Christ. Obtaining access to the grace of God in which we stand as followers of Christ and becoming miraculously children of God, sons and daughters of the King and heirs with Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is our identity is rooted in the gospel, that we have been created, that we bear God's image, and yes, we are fallen, but Jesus Christ has ransomed and redeemed us, and when we have faith in him, that we are sons and daughters of the Almighty God. Like, does this take you at all? Does this excite you at all? Like, this is our life. This is what the gospel is. This is our life as followers of Christ, and it should take us, and it should excite us, because this is what our identity is, and it leads to the next thing, and the next thing is that a part of our identity is that we are sent. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go, into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. Now, I think that we get it wrong when we view the great commandment as merely a task. Especially when we view the great commandment as merely a task that we can choose to do or not. The great commandment is not just a task. It is your identity as a follower of Christ. You are sent. That is a part of being a follower of Christ. We've been given a mission, yes. But that mission is an overflow from our identity as sent people who have been called to go into the world and proclaim the grace that we have received so that others may receive it as well. So it's part of our identity. We are sent. So it means to, to not do that, 
to not go, to not preach this gospel to others, people, is, is to not live out a part of who we are. When we view it as only a task or a mission, it becomes something that maybe we want to do and maybe we don't want to do. That's not what it is. It's who we are. We are a sent people with a message. So as individuals, we are created. We are image bearers. Yes, we are fallen, but we are redeemed in Christ, brothers and sisters under God, and we are sent. What about as a church? Who are we as a church? First, we are one body under Christ. Romans 12, 4-5. For as, one, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Colossians 1, 17-18. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You know what's so amazing about these verses is, is that there is this bond amongst God's people that should be tangibly felt when we are with one another. That we are called to love one another, but we are also one body with one another, intimately connected in Jesus Christ as the head of that body. And so there's this beautiful bond amongst followers of Christ. And I'm sure you've all felt it at times. There's this, this tangible bond that's noticeable. You know, when you, you come across someone that you don't know, they're a stranger to you and you just start talking to them and you kind of notice that you have things in common and things are just kind of clicking. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, oh you're a follower of Christ. Right? This, this bond just kind of naturally happens when we come across brothers and sisters in Christ. And this bond is inherently present in Jesus' church because of our shared belief. You know, God's church is this beautiful, unique place. And I've talked about this before, you know, where, where men and women come together under the common bond of Jesus Christ. Men and women who otherwise would not come together would not maybe even be friends in the natural, but because of Jesus Christ, because of that shared relationship with him, we are intimately connected brothers and sisters. And it's a beautiful thing. There's nothing like it in the world. Which leads me to my next point, that we are set apart. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, we stared uh, longly, or for a while into the face of this scripture when we did a little short series through First Peter not too long ago, talking about how we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and what that means. This is the church's corporate identity. The church's corporate identity is that we are chosen, that we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ, like the priests of the Old Testament that would go into the inner sanctuary where no one else could go to meet with the Lord. And this is a change of identity that occurs in us. We literally go from darkness to light in Jesus Christ because we were spiritually dead, all of us. And now we have been brought to life by the marvelous light of Jesus' 
salvation. So as a church, we are one body under Christ. We are set apart. We gather for the common good. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 1 Corinthians 12.7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So as one body under Christ, set apart, we gather with one another, we gather with brothers and sisters in Christ for the good of one another, for the common good of Jesus' church. That's why we come together. You know, and there's this, this growing selfishness in the church. There really is. There's this growing selfishness in the church that, you know, we treat it as something that's not special anymore. We just come here on a Sunday morning for an hour, and then we go home. It's not special. It's like going to the movies. This is special. We need to keep that in our minds, that the gathering of Jesus' church is a uniquely special thing. It's unlike anything else that happens in this world. And we all have a part to play in it. Whether you're up here or you're there, whether it's on a Sunday morning or, or through the week in small groups or whether we're praying together or encouraging one another or sending a text to someone just to say, hey, I'm praying for you or thinking about you, whatever it is, we all have a role to play in this body. And all are equally valuable and all are equally needed and none of them are exactly the same. But if we have this kind of idea that we're just spectators, like going to a sporting event or going to a movie, then we won't step into that. We're here for the common good of one another. And the last thing that we are is we are devoted to God and his word. 1 Kings 8.61 Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord your God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commands as, it, as at this day. John 14.15 If you love me, you will keep my commandments. As God's church, we are one body. We are set apart. We gather together for the common good and the foundational roadmap for everything that we do. The foundation of our lives is God's word. It is the foundation. It is what helps us grow spiritually as we read God's word and the spirit of God partners in our bodies and in our minds and makes us more into the image of Jesus Christ. As a church, God's word must be readily and regularly preached. It must be readily and regularly read and gleaned from so that the Holy Spirit will work in our lives. It has to be a fundamental aspect of our identity. And I can tell you that any move away from the centrality of Scripture in a church is not a move of God. But it's not just that we hear God's words preached. It's not just that we read God's word because devotion to God and his word is about what you do when you hear it. It is about what you do when you read it. Anyone can hear it. Anyone can read it. Devotion to God is how you respond to it. And so as a church, we respond to the word of God that we hear preached. We respond to the word of God that we read so that the Holy Spirit will work in us, that he will be glad to dwell in us. And so as a church, we are one body under Christ. We are set apart. We are gathered for the common good. 
We are devoted to God and his word. This is who we are individually and as a church. And so then, what is our purpose? What is our purpose as an individual? What is our purpose as a family? And what is our purpose corporately as a church? And very simply, it is this. Our purpose is to bring glory to God. That is our purpose, whether individually, as a family, or as a church. And I can tell you, like this is a truth that has taken my heart captive. And it is a hope of mine that, that this has captured your heart as well, like deeply and truly. It is, it is something that, that my wife will, will hear me talk about constantly. I want to glorify God. I want to see God glorified. I want him to have glory in all things. You'll hear me pray it here. God, be glorified. God, have your way. May you be pleased with what's going on here. I want him to have glory because that is our purpose. That is our ultimate purpose as individuals and as a church. That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. So I desire for us in our individual lives as families, as a church, to have this clear singular aim toward the glorification of God, that that may be the overwhelming focus of our lives. And listen, we do a lot of things here. You know, we talk about vision and we talk about things that we do, but whether it be preaching, whether it be worship, small groups, baptism, the Lord's Supper, whatever it may be, all of it is a form to the glory of God. That is the end purpose of it. Everything that we do. If we're not going to small group for that reason, what's the point? If we're not coming here for that reason to glorify him, what's the point? All of it is to his glory and to our good. If we don't do it for that reason, why do it? And so my hope for your life as individuals and us corporately is that we would see God as being the greatest pursuit of our lives, that we would see God as being the most important pursuit that we have, that he would far exceed everything else in this world, so that we may give him the glory that he deserves, that we may be consumed by this desire, that it would pour out from our souls, that it would pour out from every single pore of our bodies. And the reason why I took time this morning to look at just these simple truths that we all know of who we are is that the desire to glorify God grows when you understand the truth of who you are. When we understand the truth of who we are, we will understand that our whole lives as created beings, as those who are in his image, as those who are fallen yet redeemed and adopted, as those who are sent and corporately one body gathered to the devotion of God, our whole lives are about him. And therefore, who deserves more glory than him? Look at it 
This truth is in Scripture, Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's so many other scriptures we can look at. Isaiah 60, verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Revelation 4, 11. You could go all over the word of God and see his glory is our purpose. And theologians all throughout the ages have picked up on this reality. You know, if we look at the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, they ask, what is the chief end of man? And they answer, the ultimate purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The ultimate purpose God has given man is to glorify him. Romans 11 makes it clear all things exist to his glory. So when I began this morning, I talked about the joy that make-believe uh, play brings to kids. And I believe that when adults live in this kind of make-believe world where they're, you know, they are their ultimate authority and they do whatever they want and be whatever they want, ultimately what they are seeking is joy. Ultimately what they are seeking is satisfaction because that is the chief end of man. That is a chief pursuit of the human heart. We will always look for joy. And the amazing thing is God took this into account in how he created us to be. Our greatest desire is joy and he made it so that when we pursue him above all things, when we glorify him above all things as he rightly deserves, it will be our ultimate joy. That is where our ultimate joy will be found. You see, God's desire to be glorified is it's not just because he deserves it, it's for our good. Because that is where our ultimate joy is found. When we glorify him. 18th century pastor uh, Jonathan Edwards, he says this, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. He that testifies his having an idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his delight in it. Saying it's not enough to talk about God's glory. You glorify him more when you delight in it, when you enjoy it. C.S. Lewis, he talks about at the beginning of his faith journey, one of the things that he struggled with believing in God, one of the major problems that he had with it were the commands in the Psalms uh, that we must praise God. He said it, it seemed to him that God was craving our worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. But as he came to faith, he explains in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, why he was wrong about that. This is what he said. So the most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, ap approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. 
my whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards to the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help but doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. That's incredible. C.S. Lewis came to the realization that God wasn't telling us to praise him because he's some vain woman looking for compliments. He's telling us to praise him because he understands that those things that we love, those things that we desire, they automatically overflow in praise. When your favorite team scores a goal, you praise. We praise our wives for how beautiful they are or how wonderful they are. We praise our kids when they do well in school or you know, we celebrate them when they accomplish something. Praise naturally overflows from something we love and something desire. And so C.S. Lewis finally realized, oh, God's just telling us to do what naturally happens when we value him the way that we should. Praise is the consummation of that. It completes our joy. Right? We don't keep it to ourselves. We go, God, you're amazing. We can't help but talk about it. It's the consummation of that joy. Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis both recognize that glorifying God is the culmination of our greatest joy. And so my hope for every single one of us is that we would understand this as individuals and as a church, understanding who we are, knowing our greatest purpose is the glorification of God. And through that, we will obtain our greatest joy. It won't be found in anything else, anything else you could possibly chase after in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to bask in who you are this morning. You are worthy of praise. You are worthy of all that we can give you. Lord, I'm thankful for what we can glean from C.S. Lewis's journey that it's not about throwing you a compliment as though you need anything. You don't need anything. Our praise is a, a consummation of our greatest joy. That when we're taken by you the way we should be, we will naturally talk about you glorify you and honor you with our lives and with our words. And so, Father, I pray that that would be the heart for every person here. You know, we are, we are fallen and we will get distracted. We will miss it. It's not going to be perfect, but God, may we always come back to you. May we always long to be in your presence, knowing that that's where our greatest joy is found. That is where life is found. Father, help us to, to break off the, the sins that hold so closely. Help us to break off the distractions that keep us from, from stepping into this reality. May we not seek joy in lesser things that are fleeting and will constantly cause us to strive. But may we rest in the joy that is found in you. 
And Father, I pray that each one of us will understand that our value comes from being an image bearer. That we don't have to work to be valuable. That we don't have to accomplish to be valuable. That we don't have to try and push these limits that you've put upon us. It's not based on anything we do. It's not based on anything someone says. It's based on what you have declared and what you have created. And I thank you for that, Lord, because there's rest in that. Pray that these truths would go deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.